I think at least till around B or C, you have to understand everything, but be a specialist in, in only a few, a few things. Later on, when the company is, is bigger, you can have the privilege of, you know, basically just uh, doing whatever you do best and leave the rest aside because you have good people around you that could make that happen for you. How are you keeping, man? How are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much. Busy times. Busy. Yeah, I remember last time we spoke as well, you were very busy too. Is that more so with the stuff you do by day with the law firm or more on the investment side? Yeah, so I think everything, it's just the end of the holiday period here. So everything gets squashed into, uh, you know, the end of the year. Mm -hmm. Trying to handle it all at once. It's always, you know, just a busy time. Yeah. So man, just for my clarification, also the clarification of the listeners as well, like you are currently an angel investor. So interested in the startup scene through angel investing, but work full-time as a lawyer as well, but are also a general partner at a VC firm. So what exactly is going on? What was, what's your story and how, like what, uh, what does average day for you comprise of an average working day? Most of the, my time I, I spend at the office. Uh, that's the main thing that I do. Um, the, the, the film, the venture capital film that I'm uh, part of is, is based in the US. So it's mostly nights <laughs> that I would uh, connect with them and we'll walk through deals and uh, whatever. Uh, and the investment. Although I've had a few, I wouldn't call myself the classic angel. That's not something that I do. I don't wake up in the morning and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to sit with 10 or 15 um, founders today and understand what they do and uh, choose whether to invest or not. The discovery process is, is kind of different. It's either through referrals, people that I know, mostly in the U.S., or through my clients, whether it's clients that I believe in all clients, you know, they, they would refer to me sometimes interesting stuff. So can I ask then, what's the, from your perspective, what's the difference between being kind of an angel investor versus being a partner at a firm in terms of maybe kind of, do you do the due diligence yourself when you're an angel or do you rely on others for that? Or how does, how does it work? Um, the, the similarities, for me at least, before I, I'll talk about the differences, the similarity, I think, is the gut feeling. Uh, that's the, the thing that, uh, uh, you know, guides me in, in both scenarios. Uh, but obviously, there are huge differences. As, as a single investor, um, the amounts are smaller. It's the due diligence is thinner. Even though I'm a lawyer, I would mostly look at... Uh, uh, at what people think about the founders when it comes to referral, when it's my clients, then uh, I know them. And with the firm, it's it's a longer process. Usually it involves several firms, so um, it's completely different. More, more people on board, people checking, you know, the financial stuff that I wouldn't do as a single investor. Okay. Great, yeah. So maybe let's talk a bit about your firm as well. So I understand you kind of invest across the remit, you know, you're not really, you're kind of sector agnostic. 
So is there a kind of particular focus that you take ownership of or are you just kind of everywhere? Right. So Pay It Forward is, is led by two main partners who, who, who sit in the U.S. Uh, we invest in a, in a very wide range of, uh, of, 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 uh, of companies and founders. Take a look at the website and see it's, it's not, it's, it's very agnostic to, to any specific domain. And um, I do not have any specific goal. I, I, I look at the Israeli market. Um, when I see things that I think are big enough, and there are lots of opportunities here, um, I introduce them to the firm, and then we decide together whether it's interesting enough. Okay. And Yara, I had a question about, uh, you mentioned most of your personal investments are made via referrals typically from the US. So how, how did you build relationships with the people that refer you companies and how do you essentially establish that trust? Because I imagine it's a great deal of trust and it's like, okay, I know this per- what this person shows me. They've, they've done some level of pre-screening that I can take their word for it and then look at the company with a with certain level of ease. Right. So that's an interesting story, but to, to summarize, basically it all starts with my clients. I'll build trust there. Israel is a very small market, so all startups have to, at some point, go to the U.S. and then recruit employees and senior executive, and I get a chance to work with each and every one of them. And then relationship develop. That's how I um, got introduced to the venture fund. That's how uh, I, I build a, a client base in the U.S. And I think I've been doing this for 11 years or so. So. It grows up slowly. It's not something that happens in a day. It's not like I would get myself to the U.S. and do a couple of meetings and then build that. It's something that basically grew from my clients uh, and uh, developed that way. And then how does, in your opinion, how does being a lawyer make you a better investor? Or does it? I think as as, as an investor... So it's very different, right? As a lawyer, you get to be very detailed oriented. You care about every little thing. Uh, it's important to, you know, for the client to understand what he does. And as an investor, it's a completely different mindset. Uh, one of the investments that I, I personally made and then brought on the thing to invest there as well was a sugar company. And I think at the beginning they've had nothing. I even I didn't have, even get a chance to taste it. I spoke with someone who I uh, trusted. He told me he thinks it's going to the right direction. I looked at the market. Uh, understand the market is huge, and basically it's you know if you're a new sugar company and you have a real product that can replace whatever is happening in the sugar market today then you're the next drug dealer, basically, because the world is addicted to, to sugar and uh, there's no, not a chance for that to change. And you, if you get an opportunity to bring something new that is healthy, then as long as the product is okay, you have a huge opportunity. And as an investor, I basically just looked at that opportunity and I, I didn't dig into... You know the, the details themselves and the patents and everything that they've had there. I trusted someone and I went along with it, and it, it proved to be very good. 
Nice. And what, what exactly was the company doing? They were manufacturing their own sugar or they had a technology process around sugar? Well, they have a sugar replacement. Oh, okay. Cool. But it's one-to-one. It's amazing. Already in the market and, uh, you know, I expect it to grow big. And um, in another company that prints missiles that I invested in personally, I basically spoke with someone. I didn't understand someone that I trusted. Didn't understand the technology, and I think when we invested, uh, both him and myself, the the product was far from perfect, and now they're performing very well. And I think they're going to send a missile to uh, to orbit soon, and it will be printed. Fantastic! So it sounds like you're investing in a lot of kind of frontier or deep tech companies. So whatever you know, whatever is interesting, whatever whenever the market is is big enough. I don't have, it's not a huge amount. It's, the amounts are not huge, but the amount of time that I can allow myself to dive in and actually understand every little detail is very, uh, is, uh, I don't have that time. Going back to your question between being a lawyer where you have to be very detailed oriented to be an investor where you have to have the feel and the basic understanding, um, you know, uh, to decide whether it's good or not. So how, how early would you personally invest in these companies or via your fund in terms of kind of seed, you know, when it's still an idea in a lab or do they have to have some kind of commercial traction? So paid forward, um, again, even in that respect, is very diverse. From seed to, I think, CSC, that's what we've done. Uh, it basically, uh, it's very opportunistic when we see a good deal, uh, we, we do it for myself. I'm, I'm, I'm very, you know, I'll, I'll participate in the very early stages of, of a company. And what, what kind of, so we mentioned kind of biotech and space tech, what, what kind of areas of, should we say frontier technology or deep technology are you personally most excited to see come to fruition in the near future? So there's this one company called Edvo uh, that I invested in, and they are basically uh, reinventing operating systems. It's, it's not an operating system yet. It, it's working inside of a browser, but um, the way they, I guess, contemplated the entire thing uh, makes me feel, you know, it's going to be big. So you talk about this gut feeling. Can you maybe expand a little bit more? Obviously, a gut feeling would come from you know your decades of experience in the game. But to you know any new investor out there, or someone looking to join a fund or become an angel, are there is there anything you can pick apart within that gut feeling of like perhaps metrics you look for, certain verticals, certain you know types of founder or anything? Right. So again, divided to two. It's very hard to explain what a gut feeling would be with respect to a person. Um, so I guess speaking to others and understanding that that person is reliable, uh, trying to understand you, you, they're not overselling you, right? That it makes sense to the stage they're, they're at and they're not going to conquer the world uh, just where they are right now, but they do see it happening in the future. Uh, and the gut feeling with respect to the market, I think it's easier. You basically need to see a market failure or something that happens 
all the time people got used to smoking and someone has a good idea how, of how to fix it. So those are the two things. It's interesting because I know Paul Davidson, founder of Clubhouse, said that basically the best consumer technology takes existing behavior that's kind of, you know, offline and takes it online. And it, that's the way to like minimize friction, uh, particularly in the adoption of consumer apps. Is that something you also look for, that, a statement you agree with? Definitely, but I, I don't see that, you know, that kind of business happening as frequent as it was. But because of Corona, because of COVID, lots of businesses went online. So it's the world is much more connected right now than it was. So the opportunities are less available and it's, it's, it couldn't be the only, um, you know, business case you're after. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's valid. It's always has been, I mean, since the dot-com area. And Yar, what is it about overselling that's so off-putting for investors? Because I uh, recall when I used to work at a VC as well, we had it, we very, remember very well, it was one of my first weeks there. And we had this company that was in an investment committee stage. And, you know, it was, everyone was kind of expecting it to go through. Great, great value proposition, great technology, everything boxes ticked. The, the guy, however, came across as too salesy to the to the investors. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs are always told, you know, you always have to be selling. Like, what's your elevator pitch? You know, sell me your idea. So uh, younger entrepreneurs typically are always in this like, sales mentality. So when is it sort of emotionally intelligent to stop selling? And, and what, what do you do instead? So what are your thoughts on that? I think there's only so much that you could sell a product in the, in the seed stage. Right? The product is limited. It's, it's not there yet. You don't have the, enough of a user base to determine where it's going. So that's something that lots of founders tend to do. Just say, you know, we have a better product. It's better than everything else that we have in the market. But, you know, there's no validity. So that's overselling the product. Overselling yourself as a founder could also be dangerous. I think what I want to see, I don't know about others, but what I want to see is someone who's convinced of the confidence that he's going to win this, but um, can also explain why. Why he's, he, he, what's the tool set that he or she has that's going to make it him or her, you know, win that race. Mm -hmm. And if if they basically say, you know, I can do it, but don't say why, then for me, it's all selling. Well, it's about their skills that they bring to the table. Because the idea can be, you know, I think in this day and age, ideas are like a dime a dozen. But if you bat the right people, they'll be able to make it happen to a, you know, better degree than anyone else, you know, and it, it becomes less idea dependent. And more founder dependent and then you kind of get into the whole realm of like if you need to pivot they'll be the ones to do it and they're able to like right. adapt to different situations a lot more and it's not necessarily you know people who say i can do everything and, and they can it's more like i can do this and that and i understand my limitations i know that i cannot be for example the ceo of this company i can take it to a stage where we raise enough funds, uh, we have enough sales to bring someone professional from the market who can basically, you know, make this thing fly. So acknowledging your, your downside is, uh, is also important.
So it sounds like, you know, someone whose optimism is grounded in practical rather than, you know, off in the clouds with uh, being delusional that, yeah, I can do everything. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And, and do you think that's good advice kind of as a tangent to that? If you're a founder who's very good at kind of speaking to people or you're a founder who's very good at coding, that you should really, really drill into what you're good at and then understand, okay, I need to build like a, an Avengers type, like um, super group around me of other people that can kind of fill in the gaps that I don't have, as opposed to kind of trying to be like a jack of all trades. I think at least till around BOC, you have to understand everything, but be a specialist in, in only a few, a few things. Later on, when the company is, is bigger, you can have the privilege of, you know, basically just uh, doing whatever you do best and leave the rest aside because you have good people around you that could make that happen for you. So, yeah, I had a question about uh, the sort of investment space and how deals are sourced, essentially, because you, you mentioned a lot about when you find a new company is through somebody that you trust and a referral. So, and then you go with by getting a feel and getting an intuition. Do, do you think the internet will ever replace word of mouth for investing? I I don't because I think good opportunities are how to find. And once you do, you want to make sure those you know benefit from that. So I think we're very far off from private securities being accessible to everyone. That's what you're asking. Yeah. More so in these tools I've seen pop up where it's like, you know, sign up and we will increase your deal flow or marketplaces connecting investors and startups. I've seen a lot of these tools and, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of them claim that we're going to, we're going to ramp up your deal flow. All you have to do is sign up, pay a subscription, whatever. It's more, more of that sort of democratization of access to, to good companies, almost like dig- digital networking events. Right. I'm not a member of any of these, so it's hard for me to say whether they're successful or not. But I can only imagine there's a certain portion, it's not that very, very small portion of deals there that are top quality deals, if at all. And the rest is basically um, garbage. Yeah, standard. I think that's probably the case with all, all deals in the startup I mean, ecosystem. Me, Siraj and I know personally that you always make the best connections when you meet them in person. You know, that right. might be through a friend, friend of a friend, might be an in-person event. Um, I think it's, it's not only the quality of, you know, the deal or the potential like funding round of the company, but it's more like the personal relationship you build, right? It's, it's a lot right. harder when you meet someone kind of digitally and everything's... Everything these days, like you get like a profile and it just, it becomes very transactional, right? As opposed right. to if you go to an event, you meet a founder or an investor, you get along with them, have a long conversation, talk, like shoot the breeze, talk for hours about random stuff. And you actually build that personal connection that can be a lot more valuable down the road. Maybe, you know, not just in the moment, but down the road and who they know in their network as well. So I would definitely advise that to kind of anyone trying to break into the industry, whether as a founder or an investor, just get yourself out there. Um, not just kind of on LinkedIn, on social media, but, you know, go to events, meet people face-to-face. I right, think we've forgotten uh, how to do it a bit in COVID as well. 
right? You know, as a young lawyer, I remember myself going to meetups and meeting people and, uh, you know, just building that relationship. And I remember how hard it was. It, it wasn't an easy task, but it had to be done. And I think if you look at all of the firms, they refer business to each other. They get deals from angels. It's hardly that they'll respond to cold emails, right? It's, uh, yeah. mm -hmm. But just a com comment I want to make is that it's, it seems like a very interesting problem to find good companies that are going to do well and you know you find that some some investors actually do it consistently well as i guess what they're ultimately doing is they're consistently finding hot spots of quality people and they're realizing that these people can get the job done and it's, 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 let's, let's bet on them essentially um how do you even go about doing that you know because it's like the whole world is, is there there's all the countries in the world so where where do you find the best people at executing commercial organizations? So the, there are hubs, like uh, the Silicon Valley is uh, obviously the biggest hub. I can tell you here in Tel Aviv, most of the companies that uh, are, are going to um, succeed here in Israel and, and abroad will be based in Tel Aviv. I think it's kind of sad, but that's the way it is because money is here and, and talent is here and that's usually where they meet. What's the startup scene like in Tel Aviv? How, what's the progression of it been over the last 20 years or so? It's been crazy. I, I remember, you know, going back to not the first, but one of the first major acquisitions that were, were happened here, the, the acquisition of ICQ, and all the way through, you know, Waze and whatever companies are, are being acquired here on a, on a weekly basis. Uh, it's it's just been an amazing ride. Um, sadly for me, I, I wasn't there at the beginning, but I, I but luckily I'm here now, and uh, I think this market is going to develop much much more. I think Israelis are less exit oriented right now, and more into growing companies to become uh, you know an international giants like Iron Source uh, or Monday. So things are looking good and I think they're going to improve. improve. I actually read this on LinkedIn earlier about is particularly about Israeli startups that from the beginning, when they start, they tend to think very global, a very global perspective, but and then then use Israel as kind of a product market fit market. And then once that's complete, it's like, all right, let's let's go global, let's go to the world. It seems it seems that's been an immensely successful uh tactic and technique to use because i think the statistic was q1 2022 israel had eight companies that became unicorns i think yeah i i think if you look at them most of them i'm not sure i haven't checked it but uh they're not unicorns now after the covid uh you know ended and you know with what happened in in, in the global markets most of them lost a lot of value uh -huh. but uh Going back to what you said, I think the political, the geopolitical um, environment around us, the fact that we cannot go and experiment, you know, experiment in Lebanon or in Jordan or in Egypt or anywhere around, forced us to go to you know the the, the markets that are overseas and mostly to the U.S. And that's the good part. 
uh-huh. of being in conflict with everyone around you. Yeah, the silver lining. You know, when you put someone in a difficult place, they kind of come up with solutions that are, are even better than what could have originally been done, right? So that's fantastic. Very yeah. resourceful. That's right. And also, I think, you know, the, the army and the fact that uh, the army is developing, developing lots of technologies also, you know, supported, uh, you know, the supported and still supports the, the startup scenes here. Um, a lot of uh, venture capitalists uh, not only enjoy coming here, but also, um, you know, find good deals and good merchandise and good founders here. And I think, as I said, it's going to get better because Israel, the mindset of Israel has changed and we're not only into uh, selling, we're also into holding and growing. So going mm-hmm. to be good. I was, I was just going to say there's something as well that's it's worth replicating. It's worth looking at and saying, hey, what can other countries learn from this method of launching launching an organization? Because I, I remember it, when I worked in the VC scene here in the UK, it was very much, you know, if a, lo- a lot of times some of our investors would see that a startup had a US plan, let's, I mean, we're going to launch in the US next year in two years time. A lot of investors would think, you know, why do that when you continue consolidating in the UK? You've already nearly got a profitable business, you know, just, just stick with it and you know, grow your business to 20, 50 million. That's it. Whereas they, you know, the founder themselves, very optimistic, ambitious person, they want to go 1 billion, 2 billion, 10 billion kind of valuation and conquer the world. So there's that kind of conflict of uh, how conservative you should be with your ambition. Here, you don't have a choice. You have to go overseas. You know, it's uh, since it started, there were like five and a half, six million population here. Now we're approximately nine. It's it's very hard to be successful when yeah. the market is small. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can pivot to what you're building personally. I understand you have a product called PulseHound directed at kind of who, who's the who's the target market? Is it investors, angels? Right. Yeah. So PulseHound is basically um, uh, a new way for investors to manage their private securities. Uh, For me as an investor, all I have is a spreadsheet. I basically list everything there. I measure ROI and whatever, and it's, I don't have a direct contact or constant contact with the the company. I don't know what has changed. And I think it's a downside boiled for me. Oh, forget about me. Let's say someone with even deeper pockets who could basically uh, maybe um, invest again or, or realize an opportunity. And for the founders who, who cannot, you know, basically uh, have their counterparty, their partner, the investor informed and uh, intrigued to invest more or to be more involved or to help them raise not only capital, but also um, people, whatever they need, talent, I mean. So Paul Sound is that Excel spreadsheet. Basically, help you list everything, manage it, uh, be in contact with your company, and manage your securities much better. That's that's the way we see it now. The next stage for us would be um, helping you recapitalize of, of, of what you've already done. So we'll help you um, offer your borata to others and basically sell positions that you cannot longer keep investing because the valuation is too high. 
also kind of become a marketplace at some point. Right. I mean, you've mentioned the fact that there are no quality deals. I think that's the way to solve it. Because if I'm uh, an investor looking for a secondary deal, or if I want to invest in a company that I know is good, it's better for me to look for someone who already invested and to invest through them. I mean, chances will be higher of me being accepted to that company. Yeah, I think Micro Acquire, which I'm sure you've heard of, has a, like a similar model. And I think theirs is, they really put the founders first in terms of just volume as well. So they'll have like a small number of founders and loads and loads of buyers, which of course is probably different to how, you know, most, you know, format kind of these marketplaces operate, in which case mm-hmm. they're now focused on the, the founders and their well-being. Um, and they'll be able to select the best buyers from a massive pool as opposed to kind of putting too much focus on the on the buyers and then the founders get a poor deal. Right. So I'm, I'm looking at it. It's very similar, but I think I'm doing it the other way around. I'll be looking at the investors and helping them source deals, understand the value of what they have, and in the future, finding ways to get more of what they've done in the past and basically recapitalize on successful positions, decide when it's time to sell an existing position and have the place to do all that. So does, from your perspective, does it matter for a founder kind of like who their investor is at the end of the day? Because if you put the investor in the limelight, then isn't the founder kind of getting less of a say in who invests in their company or do you not see that as as an issue really? I think at some point, it's not an issue. Just before an IPO, it doesn't really matter. But the way we, um, we are structuring it, the identity and control will not change. The acquirer will basically get an economical benefit and not more than that. So the founder is very agnostic to what happens. And he's only happy because that same investor keeps investing in that company and his or her company, and the cap table remains the same. No additional investors, no noise, and uh, less, you know, less shopping to do outside. Yeah, and it makes sense because it's not, it wouldn't be like kind of seed or early, right? It would be growth stage, capital injection, as you said, leading up to an IPO where it's just, I need, I need the capital as opposed to, I need to find, you know, I need someone who's going to sit on my shoulder and help me solve this problem and that problem and find product market fit. So no, it makes sense. I think that the process as it is right now is, is broken, uh, broken and inefficient. Think about the you know, founders spending so much time raising money and investors wasting so much time seeking good opportunities. There's a bridge and that's what we're trying to do here. So is this a way for investors to exit earlier or offload some of their positions to other investors? Um, it could potentially be uh, a way for uh, an investor to exit without changing control. That's the idea what we ha- that we have. Uh, but we think about it as a way to benefit from an existing position, basically just selling the poata and not more than that, selling the right to participate. Right. Okay. Okay. So I think I missed that. I missed that part of where. When you said that, that nothing changes on the cap table, so think about the model that you have now. If you're if you're if you're a venture fund and you have a very successful position, 
but the fund basically don't have any more funds to um, to invest, what you would do is you will incorporate an SPV, inject that SPV with money of others, and manage the position and take the carry. Okay. There is no reason for that model not to be implemented in in you know for other for other investors to benefit from the same model. Makes sense. Does, does that model already exist? What you just described? Yeah, co investments happen, you know, all the time. So you're just, you're just kind of making it easier for investors to jump on, find these deals, and make these investments. That's right. But also, the co investments through an SPV mostly happen for venture capital funds and less for angel investors and, you know, private investors in general. So we're opening that option for them as well. Democratization. Yeah. So in this case, who who opens the SPV? Is that Pulsound that opens the SPV? Or yeah, we'll do everything for them and yeah, just help them set everything up and, and take the cash home. So <laughs> of course that's the main goal. So in the end then is it that the companies that investors invest in have essentially have to be a part of your portfolio first? Um, you're asking if they have to be listed then? I guess to be listed on the platform, of course, they'll have to be listed, but to be listed on the platform, would you already by default be an investor? You have to be an investor with an account. We have to have the information of that investment you want to um, sell, quote-unquote, and that's the way we'll make it happen. Are you asking if they yeah yeah it personally has to be invested no i'm asking i'm asking from the start the startup side so if a startup is is listed on pulsound would you have already invested in it or can other people list their startups on on pulsound so any investor could log in open a free account add all the data there and basically have Everything centralized in one wallet, where they see the investments, the ROIs, how much they invested, when, uh, updated cap tables. If they want uh, to see what's going on with the company, and they can basically ping that company, an email will be sent to the founder with an mm -hmm. update request. So that happens right now. We're also going to um, add some features, adding information from across the web to the platform, uh, similarly as you have in, in Yahoo Finance or other, other websites like that right now for public companies. And once it's there, and as an investor, you decide you want to recapitalize on a specific position, we'll help you do it. Right, got you, got you. Yeah, yeah. I, I was sorry, I was just mixed up on what the startup sourcing process was. As it was, is it something that has to be a unilateral or is it something that the entire the entirety of the investors on the platform can contribute to. Well, I understand now it's the latter. Yeah, and they, as an investor, you could, for example, you could say, I'm interested to invest in, in, in food tech and we'll show you valuation, we'll, valuations, we'll show you, um, you know, attractive companies based on data, real data, not just the field, the way uh -huh. the companies do and, uh, uh, you know, data that you don't have now. And uh, available on the next. Um, but as I said, that's the next step. We're working on it right now. We're basically uh, accepting more and more users, and hopefully, uh, we'll get there too. 
Fantastic. And you met, you mentioned about the way this is monetized is through the carry. What exactly do you break down the unit economics of that? It's a standard carry, nineteen twenty. Okay, so on the on the returns of the the company, makes right. sense. Makes sense. We are not going to change the market; only make it better, or more efficient. Absolutely. So, man, how do you find time for this with the full time job and developing this platform on the side? And two kids and a wife, and yeah, yeah. Uh, all that. Yeah, how do you find time? think if you're passionate about something, you'll find the time. Absolutely. Yeah. But is it like evenings, weekends? So it could be a middle of the day. That's what I've done today. And uh, tomorrow I'll do some legal work. And uh, the evening today I have more legal work to do. So day and night kind of mix up, but you don't really care. As I said, if you're passionate about something, if you love it, if you believe it, that it can be done, that's the way I've been doing it so far. And I believe it will work out in this case as well. Fantastic. You're the kind of guy who like plans out every second of their day, or you just kind of go with the flow and put fires out as they come, or are you very methodical and like? I'm very methodical. I have everything organized in a calendar. I know what I do. And the, the, the lawyer in you, right? Yeah, <laughs> definitely. So maybe kind of like, would you give any advice to a 20 year old? Or maybe if you were 20 years old, again, would you have done anything differently? I remember that as a 20 years old, I sent broke, by the way, 20 years old, broke after the army. I've had like uh, 6,000 US dollars in my account. And I emailed ways and told them, I want to invest that in you. So I, 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 I didn't even know what investing means back then. I didn't know about, you know, investments at all. But I had the curiosity and the understanding that something is going to change and it's going to be big. And that's what I think people should, uh, should do, should be curious about things that they love. For me, it was the internet back then, mobile, uh, the way everything is going to be, we're talking about uh, the year 2000, right? So how things are going to connect or the, two, the beginning of 2000. So that's what I would advise. Just be curious about what you love and um, commit to that. What advice would you give to someone who, I'm sure a lot of kind of listeners are in this boat, someone who's very curious about a lot of things, right? They want to do five, 10 different things and every new idea that comes across their desk, like, oh, I'd love to try that. Oh, I'd love to try that. How do you focus on the one or maybe handful of things that really matter and kind of shut off all the noise? That's a very hard one because I've had lots of ideas. I've, I've reached to a certain stage with uh, most of them and, and get, uh, like basically gave up, which I think is wrong. And I think now it's, it's more about maturity and the fact that, you know, you're willing to accept not everything will go as planned and not everything will go as fast as you want and just be more calm and ease about it and develop things. I wouldn't say slowly because a startup cannot go slow, but develop things at your pace when you have the time, when you understand something and not, you know, be mad about something not moving forward and just eventually 
uh, you know, give up just because things didn't work out for you. What What do you normally, from your experience as an investor, what are some of the very common reasons why startups might fail? Something you see recurring time uh, and time again. Yeah. So bad investor and uh, founder relationship when they basically just go into a path where most of the discussions between them are, are uh, legal and, and do not you know, involve how the startup, startup move forward. That's something that I see a lot, unfortunately. Also, uh, you know, conflicts between founders when things are not very defined at the beginning, which is, you know, very common. But if you have two big egos and they're not getting along, the fact that, uh, you know, that what every, every one of them is doing is not defined could be problematic at, at, at some point. Like when you have co-CEOs and stuff like that, just because, you know, we want to keep that step for now, and avoid the discussion, that's not something that works out well in the longer term. So, so it's, it's typically about the people, right? It's about the relationships yeah. and the interactions between the people. It's a great lesson there, definitely. Always. A product, you know, you can change a product, you can understand what you've done is not, it's not right and change it a, a bit or shift completely, but the people you cannot change. So in relation to somebody who wants to start a business, is looking to you know, start a company, eventually raise investment, what would you say are the keys to success for them over the next two to five years from an investor standpoint? Um, first of all, you don't have to choose like a, a venture that you, uh, that you understand. Like for example, the sugar company, the one of the of the of the founders is a computer science guy so you don't have to do something that is in your domain of expertise but you have to have the passion to discover you know that area uh, of, of business and to understand it deeply and not be you know um just be very uh eager to learn what you don't have and, and to, to make up for that uh, lack of knowledge. The second would be to find a good partner. It's very hard to do it alone. Um, and I think both mentally and, uh, and you know, we discussed about how, how I lose my time. So also, um, you know, time-wise, it's very hard to do things alone. And lastly, um, I think you should find a right partner. Not an investor who thinks, you know, this startup is going to skyrocket the day after, but someone who understands it's a, it's, a, it's a long run, it's going to take time, we have to be patient, and he's going to be a good partner for you, not only storing that money and moving away, but also helping you uh, attract more uh, investors, uh, help you with, uh, uh, with, you know, intros to the partners and whatever. So that's what I think is, is the key to success. Um, and that's important that, you know, founders will try to do their best uh, and get a hang on. Yeah, it's really, exactly. really insightful. Solid that, tips. That third point is kind of goes back to what we talked about at the start, right? In terms of, you know, putting yourself out there, trying to make as many kind of in-person relationships as you can. Because right. 
in your opinion, right? This can't really be sold by tech. This is one of those things that if you want to find, if you're founder, kind of pre-seed very early, maybe even pre-product and you just have an idea and finding that right person or people institution that can really help drive your growth. I know a number of founders have made that decision and they may, they may have had a great team and a great idea, but they kind of latched on to someone too soon. It kind of their interest won their heart and, you know, it didn't work out for them that way as well. So it's about finding the right people and you do that through putting yourself out there and, you know, getting uh, experience on the ground. Right. And from where I'm sitting, it's very easy to see that's the main differentiator. I can show you companies that I help who use small amounts, like five or six million in a seed based on a 100 year money valuation and have no product, but only relationship. And companies that sell two million a year have a great product, very deep technology, and are struggling to raise at an 18 per money. I guess that fundamentally comes down to relationships. It's Just all about knowing that. the right people. Yeah. Yeah. It's so then, all about that. Because that that sounds, to be honest, that sounds quite crazy to me. Like, uh, how how does company B in that situation then? form those relationships like as a because we've largely been discussing how investors find companies how does a company find an investor especially when they have an organization that's running they have operational things they need to take care of on a day-to-day basis fundraising probably not the top of their list um or might, might be the top of their list but certainly not in the if, if if they forsake their other responsibilities they may not survive so how, how does that company even go about forming those relationships? It seems bizarre that if they're doing so well that the relationships wouldn't naturally come themselves. So I think it's it's a lot of time uh, about, um, and I'm not saying that on that specific company, but founders being too arrogant. I think, you know, we've, we've boomed, we're selling in a few millions a year. And, and they think that, you know, investors will basically jump and, uh, you know, and, and want to invest in them. And that's not always the case because if you're an investor and specifically if you're an agnostic to the field, you don't care about, you know, um, any specific story or anything like that. You have a variety of founders and ventures to choose from and you choose from what you see best. And it's a, it's a very, it's a huge red flag if you're selling so good and, um, but you're unable to waste money for a very long period of time, something is not working there. And as, an, as investors, they basically just jump to the other company. Mm-hmm. So not, not... Maybe they sell it $2 million a year, but you know, they believe they could. Uh-huh. So I guess from a founder's perspective, being aware that the world doesn't revolve around you in the investment, in the investment world and understand who, who is the right people to talk to about this. Because... Right. And constantly like nurture the, the relationship with everyone. Yeah. Yeah. It's very important. And something that me and James have discussed in relation to how it's so different in the startup world compared to the corporate world. In the in the startup world, it's like everyone is your friend. <laughs> you know, you go to a networking event, it doesn't matter what they do, it's like, oh hello, how are you? And then you, you talk for half an hour and then you got this new contact. You don't know when it's gonna be useful, but you know, oh, I got somebody that can you know write write this stuff for me whenever I'm looking for this and this and it's like okay great. Whereas in the corporate world, it's very much 
can they directly help my line of business tomorrow? Yes, right. Give me your email. No, goodbye. Right? No, it's it's colder. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. No. It's a lot colder. Yeah. But you'll see, like uh, banks and and insurance companies, they have their own investor arms today, and they understand, especially in the tech units, that they have to change their ways if they want to get close to the most innovative technologies and uh, i mean it's it's just i think it's a culture that uh, is is changing there it's not necessarily going to be like that all the time or for long yeah technology is changing it right you know i mean it started you can even say it started like dot-com boom and you know all the rise in the 2000s and 2010s of challenger banks and Everyone using the likes of Revolut and going off, you know, all the the main banks now to manage their money. Um, and you just see it in so many verticals. And I'm I'm a strong believer, as as are you, clearly that in the next kind of like ten to twenty years, a lot of these archaic, should we say, old old school, old fashioned industries will slowly be phased out um, by new incumbents. Yeah. yeah. But no, man. Yeah. Th- thanks for your insights. It's been fantastic. I wanted to ask you. You have a picture of Winston Churchill behind you is that is there any kind of meaning there is he your you know idol someone you look up to or what's the story there so uh, I'll shift the camera so you could see better it's not really a picture it's a it's a picture obviously but you have the like the letters inside can you see it basically it's all of the all of the not all but the like the best sentences of Churchill. And that's, um, that's a company, uh, a startup here in Israel, uh, founded by Ronen Chilo. Uh, and he's one of my clients, and that's what they do. So you should check it out. It's called Motiva. Motiva. Yeah, motiva.art. Nice. So they make, they make kind of like, you know, is it like motivational pictures of historical figures and, you know, inspirational yeah, artwork? That's really stuff. cool. No, yeah, not only history, crazy stuff. Like, you know, they've had, they saw the uh, a signature, one like that, the signature of Warren Buffett uh, with his picture. Uh, I think it cost, the, the, it went to an auction for uh, girls.inc. Uh, and I think they sold it at uh, 75K or something like that. Nice. So that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Put us in touch, man. I'd love, love to speak to them. This is a really cool uh, concept. I like it. Sure. I'm on the website now. Yeah. They, it's uh, making good money from that art. (laughs) They're doing okay. (laughs) Don't tell anyone how much it costs. (laughs) (laughs) That's a surprise. You got to go motiva.art. Find out yourself. Get a, get a little right. affiliate affiliate link in there as well. <laughs> <laughs> Not for me. Man, do you want to ask you as well? I understand you're a United fan. Just quickly, how uh, how do you how do you feel about the season so far? Uh, you know, it's been developing. I'm, I think it's uh, it's a very promising start of something new. Very happy for for Rashford. He's uh, he seems to be back in form. Right. Which is, uh, exciting. Uh, you know, lots of noise with Ronaldo, etc. But uh, at the end of the day, it's just a moment in a in a season, in a year, in a decade, in in a club. And at the end of the day, everyone will forget it, about it. The end goal is to become successful again, uh, and uh, that's what I'm looking for. Yeah, it's just, the the Ronaldo thing is just the headline grabber, right? I think it's in it's like an indictment of where sport and maybe even society is headed like we think less about the team and more about the individual 
and you get legions of kind of football fans who are now just supporting individuals and not teams. But it's like us kind of proper old school fans. It's like, I want to see my team do well. I couldn't care less who the players are as long as it was back to winning trophies, frankly, right? Well, you have yeah. your favorites and it's, I agree, it's great to see Rash doing so well again. And like, uh, you know, what, what a couple of weeks he's had. But you know what I mean? It's like, you want to you want to see, you want to put the team first and it kind of, it disheartens me when I see so much kind of all the players grabbing the headlines when it's all about the team, really. Maybe there's right. a wider a wider life lesson in there somewhere, you know. <laughs> but I think that's where things are going, and uh, the way you know, I don't know anyone there. I only read the news, of, of like most of us. But it, it seems like everyone there understands it that uh, it's all about the team, and uh, I'm looking for happy days, hopefully. Yeah, ten hogs, man. I'm loving it. It feels it feels different this time, definitely. It, yeah, it feels like a new does. dawn. He's the dictator that we needed. Mm. But he's just, yeah, he's like no nonsense, you know, like doesn't doesn't take shit from anyone. If you don't play or perform or you get in this bad side, you're out of the team. Play style first, everything like that. And it's like, no, just watching the games, like finally I'm seeing like a play style. We're good on the ball, we press high up the pitch, and we like we're we're winning balls back. Do you know what I mean? Like how when was the last time you saw that? Always sitting deep and countering for like the last half a decade and now finally it's like all right we're taking control of the ball like a proper european team should all right i think i fell in love with him at the beginning of the season he the, he i think i don't remember the exact day, game but we ran 18 18 kilometer less than the other team and then the day after he made Great everyone food. run 18 kilometer more in training and he ran with them and that's that I understood at that point this man is knows what he's doing because uh, like you know it's the same team pretty much some players came some players left but mentality was the the weak part for us so I love I love uh, the point I love the point that he kind of ran with them as well I think there's a lesson for you know anyone in management or just in, in a lot of walks of life just like kind of practice what you preach it's very easy to sit and you know as CEO of your company for example and just kind of bark out orders or as a managing director or whatever it may be but actually to get in there with the trenches and help your team out especially when it's a growing startup is absolutely essential i think it goes back to the kind of the point you made about people being arrogant at the start and something that i've witnessed definitely like kind of founders coming and being oh i need i need to be that guy on tech crunch like i need to be the star in the limelight and it's all about that right it's about building it's about customer first it's about building a great team and all of these things right mm -hmm. so it's a very important lesson in there as well yeah no uh, perfectly agreed. you you made me think about it right now why why i loved it so much and now yeah. everything connected beautiful well man it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you thanks a lot for your time thank you very much guys take care all the best. Bye. Give Take touch. care of yourself, man. Bye-bye.